good to see everyone today. What a blessing. Praise be to God. Welcome if it's your um, first time or you're visiting with us today. It's a real blessing. We trust that the Lord has led you here. And um, we're about to have our second installment in um, our um, short series in stewardship. So throughout the, the month of February, we're going to be considering the, the theme of stewardship. And so it, it does mean that we're going to be talking about money. Um, but we don't want you to feel uncomfortable. It's not something we normally do. In fact, we've done it twice in 14 years. And so um, it's not something we harp on about. Um, and yet it is a fundamental fact of life. It's a fundamental fact of life. And it's one that actually people talk about a lot in life. People talk a lot about money and um, have great aspirations as far as money and finance is concerned because it's seen as the kind of answer to all things. Um, and yet um, there is a, a certain degree of truth in that. There's a proverb in the Bible that says money answers all things. Um, but that's from an earthly point of view. Um, it cannot answer the eternal issues of life. So let's just keep it in context, amen? <laughs> and so um, as we do look at stewardship today, um, my endeavor is to build on last week. And if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to listen to the talk. It's available on our podcast on Ecclesia. It's on iTunes and sermon.net. Um, shout out to the podcast team who do such a great job of getting it out in a timely fashion each week, and the sound team also in that. So bless you guys. Amen. Praise God. Amen. Unsung heroes. Give them a big up. And, um, you know, we realize that sometimes in some situations, um, money is, is talked about in, in church and, um, you know, people kind of take the approach um, that they kind of really need to be a bit kind of maybe um, can't, a, bit, a bit cagey and, you know, they try and lace the, the issue with humor. Um, I once heard the story of um, a, a church that was in need of repairs and they had a building rally. And so they, um, you know, put out a, an appeal to the congregation to have people pledge and commit to support this building rally. And the richest person in the church stood up and he was evidently the most wealthy. Everybody, all the members knew it. And he said, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to give 10 pounds towards the work of the building rally. And um, as he said that, People felt a bit kind of, um, yeah, uh, a bit discouraged. <laughs> this is the wealthiest man in the church. And um, he was about to sit down and, and a piece of plaster from the ceiling fell on his head. <laughs> and um, he stood up and he said, actually, I'm going to give a hundred pounds and one of the old mothers of Zion sitting at the back of the church said, touch him again, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> now, these are stories that I genuinely heard growing up. Trust me. <laughs> but, you know, the reality is that money is no laughing matter because it is a fundamental expression of worship. For all people, whether you believe in God or not, 
It's a fundamental expression of worship, as we'll see. And so it is very much a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. And so we have to deal with the heart of the issue as we consider um, the issue of finance. And so we're going to be looking today um, at a parable that is generally quite hard to wrestle with. People have found it quite hard to understand because, in fact, it actually suggests that Jesus is maybe contradicting his very own holiness. And so we'll be looking at Luke 16, verses 1 to 15. And before we turn there, um, I'll just pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your goodness, your kindness, and your mercy. We thank you, Lord, for your abundant provision towards us. And Lord, we ask that you would show yourself strong among us in every way, um, in order that, Lord, you would be glorified among us. And so we commit this time and ourselves to you, and we pray that you would be pleased as we declare you Lord over all, all of us, Lord, all of our lives, including our finances. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Luke 16, 1 to 15. Um, it's a few verses, but it's the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> this is Jesus speaking. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do. So that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot 
serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So we're talking about the issue of stewardship, and this is the parable of the, what is also known the unjust steward. The term manager and steward is interchangeable. The modern translations use manager, older translations use steward. And so we're seeing the picture of someone who is a steward. Now, just as a flashback to last week and a reminder, we said that a steward is somebody who is committed with the charge of looking after another person's property. Fundamentally, that's what we mean by stewardship. Yeah? Someone who is a manager, an organizer, an overseer, a custodian, a caretaker. I saw a, a, another definition as it relates to steward, which I find very helpful and I think will help us. A steward is someone entrusted with another's property and charged with the responsibility of managing it in the owner's best interest. Not in their own best interest, but in the owner's best interest. So when we consider this, and we consider the fact, as we looked last week, that our lives, our very lives, have been given to us as a stewardship. For one who has come to God and received forgiveness, who has now escaped his, the, the, the wrath of his judgment and has newness of life, the scripture tells us that our lives are no longer our own. Amen? Amen? Uh, an illustration of that that has helped me in, in more recent years has just the con been the consideration of someone who's been taken into the witness protection program. I shared this on Thursday. I gave a preview at community group. Imagine somebody who's been taken into a witness protection program because they were guilty of a crime. And this is something that has gone on over the years both in this country and in the U.S. notably, where you have someone who may, for example, be a mafia boss who's been caught. He's confessed his guilt to that crime and has now turned state's evidence. I'm going to divulge everything that there is to know, regardless of the implications. As a result, and as a result of the threat to that individual's life, they are taken out of their situation, and they are given a whole new context. They are put into a new location with a new identity, with, with a, 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 literally a new legal status, new name, national insurance number, everything. New history. This happens, if you didn't know. The government have this power to change person A and cause them to become person B. This isn't just the stuff of films. Even in this country, 
And the majority of the people for whom it happens and who benefit from it are people who are criminals. Self-confessed criminals. And so that person is given a whole new life and a whole new identity. Often they are taken in a moment, in an instant, and they are translated from one place. You see me all use spiritual terms, you know, translated. They're taken from one place to another with no um, declaration, no warning given to their families, to their friends. And once they are put in that place, they are no longer allowed to go back to their old life because they invariably will be killed. And so they are completely cut off. And not only are they yet to assume a new identity, but they are now to assume a new pattern of life. They cannot do the things that they once did before because those who are looking for them will just follow their old patterns and in due time will catch up with them. And so the things that they liked, they can't like the anymore. The places that they went, they can't go anymore. The clothes that they wore, they can't wear anymore. They have to become a different person. In some cases, they experience cosmetic surgery. In, extreme, in most extreme cases, there has even been simulated a death that they were dead and buried. These things have actually happened. And so that person is no longer the person they once were, and they cannot lay any claims to anything from their former life. They have to live a new life with the provisions that are made for them in this new identity. It is said to have been an, an extremely successful program, both here and abroad. And the only people who have come to harm as a result of that program are people who have actually attempted to go back to their own lives. There was one person who was advised not to go back for the funeral of a loved one, and yet they did. And as they went back to the home, the home had been rigged to blow up as soon as they turned the handle, which it did, and they died. So if you consider yourself in that situation, somebody guilty before God, you've confessed your sin, and now God has said, okay, I'm now giving you a new life and a new identity. Your life is no longer your own. You are now in Christ. It might sound almost too blasphemous to say, and your name is now Jesus Christ. But in, in a spiritual sense, that's the truth. We are known in him. And so the life that we now live, we no longer live for ourselves. But for him who died for us. See, a funeral was held as symbolized at baptism. But the one in the coffin wasn't you, it was Jesus. Praise be to God, he didn't stay there. But he's alive. And the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead now lives in you. So therefore, 
If anyone is in Christ Jesus, they are a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. You are a new person living a life that is not yours. This is so desperately underemphasized in modern Christianity. We have been crucified with Christ. And if we would grasp this truth, it would absolutely transform our lives. It would absolutely transform our relationship with God. It would transform our marriage. It would transform our work. It would transform every aspect of our lives. You see, for most people, I'm glad to come to God and have Jesus as an add-on. It's like a home improvement renovation. Jesus, he'll take the old and make it better. When the Bible says, no, God takes the old and he makes it new completely. And so in this, this is the stewardship, the life that we've now been given and 2 Corinthians 5.10 says we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for what we do with this life that God has given us. Jesus will say to you, what did you do with my life that I gave to you? And so this is the stewardship. This is what we are called to be custodians of in his name. And not just for his name but for his best interests, not our own. It's important I lay this foundation because then what happens is as we begin to think about all of the different aspects of our life, including our money and especially our money, we'll then appreciate that actually there's nothing that we are or that we have that isn't the Lord's. It's not that the Lord is merely entitled to 10%. All of it's his. God isn't just concerned with 10% or however much percent you put in the offering. God is concerned with every penny, with what we do with every penny. Not just the money that we give, but also the money that we don't give. Some of us appease our conscience and we, you know, we give our, our, our money to the offering and then feel like we can use the rest of our money for any and any foolishness. It's all the Lord's, all of it. So why are we looking at this matter of stewardship? Luke 12, 48. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Now, I wish that I had more time to spend on this series. Because, you know, Jesus spoke about money more than anyone else in the Bible. I mean, example after example in Scripture, parable after parable is speaking... You read the whole of Luke 12 when you get home or when you, when you get opportunity. I just, I just encourage you. Oh, my days. 
So who much is given, much is required. And we have to appreciate that as a people, we have been given much in this world. You might feel, oh, you know, I don't really have much. I mean, why would God want me to give money when he knows how broke I am? And God's like, really? You know that London is the third wealthiest city in the world. I think I heard Brother Andrew say fourth earlier. <clears throat> London is the third wealthiest city in the world, according to 2016 figures. Think about that for a moment. In the whole world, all of the cities of the world, the third wealthiest now, some statistics will rank wealth based on the amount of millionaires, and this isn't looking at it in those terms. This is looking at the quality of life. You're probably thinking, okay, what's the most wealthiest city? So according to UK Business Insider, Singapore is the number one wealthiest city in the world in 2016. Now these figures fluctuate, and no doubt Singapore won't be there for long. Apparently they have an aging population and need to work on infrastructure, but Singapore. <clears throat> Singapore, right? Okay, so it doesn't take away from the fact that London where we live is the third wealthiest city in the world. And so we are living lavish by world standards. <clears throat> it is said that 25% of the world population don't have access to clean sanitation. 30% don't have access to stable electricity. That figure could well be more, actually. I mean, I guess in a lot of our home, home nations, we, we know what it is when it lights out. And you, you've got electricity one second and you don't have it the next. That's, that's the case for some of us, all right? <laughs> in fact, according to The Guardian in 2015, Monrovia, Liberia was the poorest city in the world. Even though Liberia is rich in gold and uh, mineral resources, it was regarded at that time as the least developed and the poorest city in the world. In the UK... The average disposable income, and this is the UK, not London, UK, the figures are higher in London, is 26,300 for the financial year 15-16. Now, when it says disposable income, that doesn't mean money left after bills, as it often is suggested, because that would be very high, right? After you paid all your bills, you still got 26 grand left for the year. 
Some people are living like that, so it's like, some people among us are living, oh, anyway, say nothing. Say nothing. Okay. But this is, this is money after taxation. Um, after taxes, not just your gross um, to your net, um, but also things like council tax and other taxes, and also including benefits. So some people might be entitled to working tax credit, etc. So that's the average. And Brother Bertram, you work in business. That sounds about like a, a, a similar figure to somebody maxes out on benefits, right? It's less. Come on now. In London, it's £23,000 if somebody maxes out on benefits. That's the equivalent of what they get. £23,000. Yeah? So who... Who can say, even if you're on benefits in London, who can say that you're not living good? Wow. That's only £3,000 below the national average. Can you see how we've been given much? Can you see why much is required of us? This is not a joke. My Lord, have mercy. So, we get to our um, issue at hand, the parable of the steward, yeah? And the steward, the manager, has a boss, a master, who's basically going to give him the sack. And the steward recognizes this and says, okay, look, I'm not a manual label type of guy, and I'm not trying to beg out here. And so, what am I going to do to prepare for the inevitable sacking that I face and being out of work and no income? Now, often in, in these um, regions and in these circumstances, people who were managers would be given to overcharging customers. Yeah, it's important we recognize that. It helps us understand the story. They'd be given to overcharging customers in order to line their pockets with the cream. So, in view of that, the steward says, okay, this is what I'm going to do so that when I'm not employed anymore, I'm going to be okay. And that the people that I have been trading with will be favorable to me. That's what it means that the people may receive me into their houses. When I'm out of work, I'm going to have favor with those people that I've been trading with. And so he goes to them and he discounts their debt. They owe the master a certain amount and the manager says, all right, look, I'm going to discount it. The first one, 50%. The second one, 20%. And discounts their money, their owings. Now, who doesn't love freeness? Who doesn't love discount? We all do, right? And so you're going to think to yourself, hmm, that's, that's wonderful. This is a really good person. Actually, you know what? I want to continue doing business with this, this person. And so, seeing that, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now, <laughs> here's the thing. Some people have said, wow, was Jesus commending the fact that this person went behind his boss's back and discounted the money? Was, was Jesus endorsing wrongdoing? 
No, Jesus wasn't endorsing wrongdoing because the, the manager, the steward, hadn't done anything wrong. He had actually endeavored to put right what he had been doing wrong the whole time. That's why I say, when you go to a shop and you buy something in a sale, right, you're actually getting it at the price it's meant to be. That's just a lesson in life for you right there. It's free of charge, bonus material. Amen. Listen, I don't believe paying full price for nothing. That's, uh, anyway, let's keep it moving. <clears throat> and so, Jesus wasn't commending wrongdoing, but what he was doing is he was commending the manager's foresight in preparing for his imminent future. He's going to be out of work. He needs to do something in order to make sure he's all right. And so, he uses the leverage of money to gain favor from the people that he wanted to continue to benefit from relationship with afterwards. And Jesus says this, for the sons of this world, and we don't hear Jesus talk like this often. The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And so what we're seeing here is a situation where Jesus is comparing and contrasting Two groups, worldly people with worldly ambitions and desires and pursuits versus those who are children of light, children of God, with aspirations and focus fixed on heaven and the glory of the Lord. And he's saying the sons of this world are, are more shrewd, they're more cunning. They got more savvy business-wise in dealing with their own generation, and that phrase just basically means this world and this life in this instance. That's what it means. Much more than the sons of light. And that was an indictment that was like, sons of light, come on, step up your game. Now, obviously, that needs qualifying because it can sound like Jesus is endorsing covetousness. Like, do all that you can to get all that you can, and when you've got all that you can, put a lid on the can, bury the can, and however the story goes. But no, this is what he means. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. That, that's the friends that you make. Friends that you make from unrighteous wealth. Now, this isn't just in a sense of make friends, be liked, become popular, you know, do people favors financially or benefit people financially so that they'll have you in high regard. No, this is with a gospel focus. This is with a godly aspiration. It's not just for, you know, this isn't Jesus' seven steps to win friends and influence. This isn't Jesus' version of rich dad, poor dad. This is Jesus saying, look, use the wealth that you have for a godly goal, for godly gain. For a heavenly, in order that those people 
whom you have been able to gain favor with and relationship with and ultimately share the gospel with, and they then actually go to heaven, they'll greet you there one day. Because of the way you've used finance with gospel intent. In, in the NLT, it says it like this. Here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then, when your possessions are gone, they will welcome you to an eternal home. Not the possessions, but the people. Because the relationships were leveraged as opportunities for the gospel in order that people might come to faith. And so, Jesus here is talking about holy ambition, having a godly focus on wanting to use our money, our wealth, which we have abundantly in this country, for godly gain. Now, something to note. It's interesting because in older versions, that, that phrase, unrighteous wealth, as it says in the ESV, unrighteous wealth, by means of unrighteous wealth, in, in the older versions, authorized standard, New King James Version, the phrase that is used for that is mammon. Mammon. I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon. It's one of those words that kind of sounds, means how it sounds. Mammon doesn't sound good. So, the meaning of mammon, and it's helpful to us because it relates to the, the, the meaning that's trying to be conveyed in the original when it speaks about unrighteous wealth. What is unrighteous wealth? I mean, isn't money amoral? People say, uh, you know, money is the root of all evil. Is that what the Bible says? What does it say? The love of money is a root of all evil. And so it's not that money in and of itself is evil. So why would it be called unrighteous wealth, unrighteous mammon? Well, it's conveying this sense that, on one hand, because people so put their trust in money, they have deified it as if it were God. And we see this in our life and times. I mean, get rich or die trying. We, and and the, the list is endless of this sense of money is the be-all and end-all in life. And if you have money, then you're set. You're blessed. So in this we see money, riches personified as God. And it's interesting because in some occultic writings, Mammon was described as hell's ambassador to England. Old school. And this personification was, was associated with demonic spirit being. As if mammon were the, the name of a, of a demonic spirit. In fact, some throughout the years have, 
endeavor to try and portray this spirit. This is one of the common portrayals of this spirit of mammon. Look pretty, right? And so in this, we see this sense of, I'm going to leave it up there because I want us to understand what unrighteous wealth, you want me to take it off? I'm leaving it up there. I want us to understand what unrighteous wealth feels like. Not just look, because you get a feeling from that that's not nice. This is the portrayal of unrighteous riches, unrighteous wealth. Not, that's not just wealth that's been gained illicitly, you know, the, the, the underground economy, drug money. This isn't just talking about that. It's talking about any wealth in which people put their trust over the Lord. So many of us are guilty of that. And so... Unrighteous mammon cannot serve two masters. It says in Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters, for either they will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve, you cannot serve God and mammon. You either trust God or you trust money. There's no, either, there's no both and. It's either or. It's one or the other. So where is your trust today, honestly? When you look at your life and the pattern of your life and the priorities of your life, the values of your life, who are you really trusting? Who are you putting first? See, a lot of us say that we don't really have much, but it's not because we don't have much. It's because our values are in the wrong place. We're too busy trying to keep up with the Joneses. We're too busy trying to have the next big thing for us, whatever that means for us. Better house, better car, better job, more, better position, Investment properties, etc., etc., etc. Does it mean that those things are bad? Yes. And no. In that order. Hey, listen, the Thursday night family, they know by now. <laughs> Community group family know by now. You're always going to get both. <laughs> but it's true. It, it does mean that they're bad if they take the place of God, which they so easily do. You know the amount of people I see hurting themselves, hurting themselves because of this, this ideal that they're trying to Fulfill. Mashing up their life, mashing up their marriage, mashing up their kids. 
Because they have to have more in their minds. They have to have more. And so the first thing to go is fellowship. You know, I'm just too busy in life. I've got too many commitments. Hmm, okay. I didn't know things were that hard. It's not even really just that they're that hard, you know, but I'm trying to get ahead. Hmm. I didn't know getting ahead was leaving Jesus behind. Is that getting ahead, yeah? And then the problems in the relationship start. Marriage becomes lopsided. Family relationships become lopsided, begin to deteriorate. Kids get neglected, start to act up, and the, the story goes on. And I've seen this with my own eyes over the years because of this incessant need to fulfill social expectations, family expectations, parental expectations, rather than the Lord's expectations. But you cannot serve two masters. It's time to choose. Now, I'm just telling you what Jesus says. This isn't even just me having a rant. It's my own opinion. No, this is what Jesus said. Look at this. This is another one of those verses that can be hard to kind of fathom out. People misread this all the time. You have that saying, the eyes are the window to the soul. They think that this is what it's talking about. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And so we kind of think that, hmm, what's this trying to say? Does it mean that, you know, Jesus can see into our souls? And, you know, if, if, if our eyes are, and are not good, physically or metaphorically, then, you know, the, the, he's not going to be able to see into our soul. Oh, what is this about? This is fundamentally breaking down. What is it that we are setting our eyes on, fixing our eyes on? What is it that we are lusting after with our eyes? It's, it's talking about the eyes as if they are windows, and, you know, we, we open blinds and we let light into the room or we close blinds and we keep the light out. And whatever we fix our gaze on will either be light coming in or darkness. And so if your eye is healthy, if you are fixing your gaze on the right thing, then light will be coming in to your life. Those things that you are setting your heart and your mind on, aspiring after, will either be light or darkness to you. But if you're not fixing your eyes on the right thing, if your eye is bad, if you're fixing it on the wrong thing, then you will have no light in your body. Now, who is the light? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. So who do we keep our eyes fixed on according to Hebrews? Looking unto Jesus, the and of our, right. 
So Jesus is the light. And he's saying, look, you keep your focus on me, you're good. Your life will be full of light. But if not, you will be full of darkness. So what things do we kind of ask Jesus to get out of the way so that we can fix our gaze on it? If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? This is how it works. That's the root of it. Where do our desires and aspirations lie? Is Jesus your number one desire? Is he your strongest desire? Is he your greatest aspiration? You know... Time is against me, you know. Hmm. Might have to, brother. So, this is the question before us. And I think the reality is that we will struggle if we seek to honestly answer this. We will struggle. <laughs> so, right now, I need to replace my car. Um, and I, I shared this with the guys at community group and just thinking about, okay, I need to get a new car. My car served me well. And to be honest, if there was nothing wrong with it and it wasn't going to cost, cost me any money and, ah, uh, the government wasn't so bad, man, then I would just keep the car. Seriously, I, I drive an old diesel. So they've put the, the new T charge and so everything's doubled. You know, I've got a, a Cheeky people, I got a text from Islington Council. If you come and park in Islington, we're going to double your parking. <laughs> That's what it told me by text, you know. I'm like, cheeky people, boy. Because I drive an old diesel. And I'm sitting there thinking, all right, Lord, on a level, I've got a choice of cars, right? And there's some cars... I know what kind of car I would like. I would like another car like I already have. I drive a Golf. Um, but, <laughs> oh boy. Listen to this, right? Oh, please. Bear with me. I need to get these things off my chest. Confession is good for the soul. <laughs> so, you know, a few years ago, they was encouraging people to buy diesel cars, right? So I bought a diesel car. Now they're saying that they want to double everything, but, 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 they said they will give up to £4,000 for your old car if you trade it in for a, another one under what they call the scrappage scheme. Maybe that's their way of trying to, um, you know, admit that they were bad man in the first place. Yeah. But it has to be a brand new car that you buy. You have to buy a brand new car. And so I'm thinking to myself, 28 grand for a brand new car, minus four. That's still out of my league. Like, what's the point? What's the point? Now, I could hurt myself. I really could. Hurt myself. Mrs., we can do it. Don't worry. They're going to give us four grand. They might even give us six. I'll talk to them. 
Because who, who wants to tr- change their car and go backwards? You're not going to change your car and buy an old one, right? It don't make sense. Unless you, oh, you're buying a vintage vehicle. No, but people just don't do that. So you kind of, there's always this kind of sense of progress. <clears throat> but even in that and within the choice that we have, there's a, there's a more important choice. What impact will this have on my relationship with God and my ability to serve him and to love his people and serve his people and have a healthy home? And sometimes the carnal values, ah, leather seats, heated, heated seats as well. And it's, ah, brand new, just imagine. I'm just confessing that I face the same struggle. Right this minute, I'm standing in that, that, that this valley of decision. But... I'm trying to allow my decisions, my momentary decisions, to be guided by eternal values and not momentary ones. When we watch missionaries give up house, listen, I know know a lot of missionaries who are missionaries to the UK, brothers in the ministry, peers, colleagues. And when I consider they gave up thriving businesses, They gave up houses, plural, left them to family, da-da-da, sunshine, (laughs) and so much more. I mean, they're just the superficial things. What about family relationships? Kids out of school, aging parents, thousands of miles away for the sake of the gospel. For no other reason. They didn't come here to get glorified status. They didn't come here to get added benefits. They came here with a lesser status. Suffering loss. For the sake of the gospel. And that's not meant to be um, like unique. Oh, that's their calling. That's meant to be normal for the Christian life. Somebody once said, we have one life, it soon will pass. Only what you do for Christ will last. Everything else is going to burn in flames. Everything's going to burn in flames. Apart from that which we give ourselves to for the glory of Christ. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. Notice that. Jesus didn't say, one who is faithful in a very little will be faithful. We often say, oh Lord, you know, if you give me, if you were to just bless me with that, that promotion, or if you were to just bless me with that, that tax rebate or that lottery win, or then Lord, I would proper serve you with my money. And the Lord's like, no, you won't. Because the little that you have, you're not faithful with. That tells me what you are with much. That's what it says there. He who is faithful in little is faithful in much. Because God is eternal. Like, what, what, does, what's, what does size mean to God? <laughs> little or much? What is little or much? It's all the same to God. He's eternal. So, 
the little, he values as just as highly as the much. Because it's a reflection of our hearts. And so the one who is faithful in God's sight, faithful in little, is faithful in much. Likewise, the one who is dishonest in little is also dishonest in much. If you've been unfaithful in the unrighteous wealth, this earthly wealth that people trust in, if you've been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, sorry, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? You know, the Bible tells us that as believers, when we... uh, go to be in the presence of the Lord and when the earth is renewed and God makes the new, um, the new heavens and the new earth come into existence, that believers will reign and rule with Christ. We will rule with Christ and be given areas, territories, whether it's cities, countries, whatever, how it works. We will rule with Christ. And the Lord's like, oh, okay, so you're unfaithful now with this. This is just temporary. This is trivial in contrast to the eternal. And you can't hold it down with what? With this and put me first with this? Then how do you expect me to trust you with the eternal wealth and riches and power and authority? If you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Now, this isn't, you know, like you, you get a rental, a rental car, and you're like, oh, well. And you're thrashing the gearbox because it's not yours. And it's, this isn't that kind of thing. This is you've got a rental car and you never took out the collision damage waiver. And you've borrowed this car, but you know if you damage it, it's finished. You're finished. And so you are, you know, you park 10 miles from any other car. And you take care of it because it's not your vehicle to treat how you like. If you've not been faithful in that which is another's, your life is not your own. Your money is not your own. Your wealth is not your own. Your relationships are not your own. Your family is not your own. Even your children are not your own. They are his. We're stewards. If you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Old school granny said, you can't have two bull in one pen. It's a cattle-rearing analogy. <laughs> bull pen, heard the phrase? Can't have two bulls in one pen. It's a problem. It's going to be constant warring. You cannot serve God and money. Now, the Pharisees were lovers of money. We think that the prosperity gospel is a new thing, right? The Pharisees were the inventors. They loved money, and they saw it as religiously justifiable. You see, in our day and age, we see materialism. 
And materialism, materialism says you are what you have. That's all, that's all there is to life, what you have. And so make the most of it and go hard for all that you can get in this life because that's all there is. That's what materialism says. All we have is all we are. You know, the YOLO, you only live once type of attitude. It's just like, do it for the vine. And then we see that attitude in the church. Prosperity gospel is merely a sanctified or, or an attempt to sanctify greed and materialism. And comfort. Now, you have to understand that materialism is a philosophy, but it's also a religious ideology. Because behind materialism says there is nothing after this life. There is nothing more outside of this life. There is no God. This is it. So have your best life now. Sound familiar? That's not gospel. Who's going to have their best life now if you're a believer? So what are we looking forward to in glory? If this is our best life now, don't make sense. God created us to love people and use things, but materialists love things and use people. And this is what we see in the church with the prosperity gospel. In the prosperity gospel, it's I have, therefore I am righteous. Obviously, I'm blessed. You can see that I'm righteous because I have material things. So material things are the, the, the um, indication of spiritual blessings. This is the mindset of the Pharisees. The more material blessings you have, the more it shows the goodness of God. It shows how spiritual you are. If you don't have material blessings, then you, obviously you lack faith. You're not such a righteous person. This is familiar to us. This is the mindset of the prosperity gospel. Therefore, material blessings equal righteousness. God then becomes merely the genie in Aladdin who exists to serve your material need. What does that do? Doesn't that make material things greater than God? Hmm. Material blessings become viewed as God. <clears throat> and therefore, it's just another form of worship. See, this is not the gospel. The Lord said, what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The material things that we esteem, brands on clothes, wealthy vehicles and, you know, lavish life and multiple properties and holiday homes in the sun and da-da-da-da-da-da. God is like, what? You think that's life? You think that's what life is about? Listen to what Jesus said. Take care. This is in Luke 12 again. Oh, my gosh. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Your life is not defined by what you have. You are no better a person because of what you have. And you are no worse a person because of what you don't have. Don't listen to the world. Don't be conformed to the world. Don't be squeezed into its mold. 
That's worldly thinking. It's not godly thinking. It's not gospel thinking. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. The book of Acts tells us that the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Things that money cannot buy. That God has blessed us with abundantly. And so therefore, how are we to view our wealth that we have in this life? Hmm. He who provides for this life, but takes not care for eternity, is wise for a moment, but a fool forever. Wise for a moment. Ah, looks good. Until the end comes. Like, boy, where's your money? Where's your house? Where's your car? Somebody who understood this was a man called George Mueller. Um, some of you would have heard him. Um, definitely in, in more recent church history, a name that has become well-renowned. And let me tell you a little, about, a little bit about George Mueller. George Mueller cared for 10,000 orphan children in Bristol during the 19th century. 10,000 in Bristol. He never made appeals for money, trusting implicitly in God. He received one and a half million pounds in answer to prayer. This is in the 19th century. In, in present day prices, that would be well over 86 million pounds. Never made appeals for money. Prayed, trusted God, provision would be made. One and a half million pounds in answer to prayer. Now, we hear this about George Mueller. What a lot of people don't do is they don't really look at his life and look at his teaching and so on and so forth. And so let's just take, I want us to consider this as we get ready to close. I want to, lead, I want to read you a, a quote from one of George Mueller's teachings. Because you see, George Mueller never asked people for money for his causes, but he preached giving. In fact, George Mueller was somebody who preached from the scriptures giving. He's regarded as preaching it more than any of his peers, more than any of, of, the, of the other preachers of his day. Listen to this. I have been for 50 years, by God's grace, acting on the principle of Christian giving according to the scriptures. And I cannot tell you the abundance of spiritual blessing I have received to my own soul through acting thus. That it is, sorry, that is seeking to be a cheerful giver. Seeking to give as God has been pleased to prosper me. Now he breaks it down. I began when I had comparatively very, very little to spare. But as I gave, God increased my ability to give more and more. Notice, he didn't say God increased my income. He said God increased my ability to give more and more. Until at last, God has been pleased in the riches of his grace to condescend to use a poor, worthless worm like me and has entrusted me year by year 
with very large sums to expend. Now, he's not talking about what he's getting. He's talking about what he's giving and the increase in his ability to give. Many beloved saints are depriving themselves of wondrous spiritual blessings by not giving as stewards what is entrusted to them. They act as if it were all their own, as if all belonged to them, as if already they were in possession of the inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, i.e., as if the wealth of this world was our eternal hope, our, our eternal expectation. Forgetting that they have nothing whatever which is their own, that they are bought by the precious blood of Christ, and all they possess, their bodily strength, their time, their talents, their business, their professions, their eyes, their hands, their feet, all belong to the Lord Jesus Christ because he has bought them with his precious blood. See, this is George Mueller's experience. And this is what caused him to become someone of such great renown. It's not just that he was praying, but he was seeking to faithfully obey biblical principle in being faithful to give to the work. And this isn't talking about him feeding the orphans. Oh, I got money so that I could feed the orphans. No, this is him giving to the work of the ministry. And so, would you say, along with the Apostle Paul, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls? Somebody once said, there's no business like show business. The Apostle Paul here says there's no business like soul business. The human soul is the most precious and priceless commodity that anyone could ever choose to invest in. And any such investment is only rightly made as an investment in the gospel. It is of eternal value. It is of eternal worth. And so as we stand, <clears throat> what are your eyes fixed on? What is your gaze fixed on? Where is your trust? Is it in the Lord or is it in money? In what way are you investing your finances in the kingdom, however little? Because to be faithful in little is to be faithful in much. They say that the average Londoner spends more on takeaways, whether it's coffees, fast food, and so on, in a month, than those in the developing world make in a year. 
So it's not what we don't have that is the issue. It's what we do with what we do have. Father God, we stand before you convicted in need of your forgiveness. Lord, we wrestle over what to buy. Furthermore, we wrestle even more over what to choose to put on. We're so spoilt for choice. We agonize over what shall we eat because we're so spoilt for choice. We complain because the hot water wasn't on when we needed to take that shower. And don't stop to think for a minute just how blessed we are that we even have the choice of clothes to wear and food to eat and hot running water over not. And Lord, you have made it clear to whom much is given, much is required. And we, Lord, know that there is so much more that we could be doing for the sake of your kingdom with our money. Some of us have subscriptions to how many different media channels? And we can't even watch them all at the same time. And yet we struggle to to give with any consistency because we feel we don't have. Lord, we're rebuked today and we ask you to forgive us. And Lord, we ask that you would recenter our values and our priorities. Help us, Lord, to take time to reflect during this season of stewardship and just how we are stewarding that which you've given to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.